0: to generalize or to speculate about Yu attitudes toward prayer. But when we speak or sing prayers like this one, even if those prayers are expressed in the form of petitions, which this one is, few of us do so without any expectation of some miraculous intervention bursting in to change our lives. We are not surrendering our human agency when we sing or pray such words. We are not asking some power outside us to come in and save us or make things better. Most of us know, I believe, that it is we who are the shapers of our own futures. If life is to have the shape of justice, it is we, who, by our steadfast determination, will succeed in giving life that shape. Another of our favorite UU hymns, We'll Build a Land, makes it more explicit that it is we, the people, once we've been anointed by God, may then create peace, thus allowing or creating the conditions that would allow justice in our lives to flow down like waters. So back to that phrase, the shape of justice. In praying for life to be given such a shape, we are not calling merely for justice to be rendered or to get justice for those who've been wronged or to make sure that the bad guys get thrown into prison, but rather for life itself, all (coughs) of life, to actually have the shape of justice from the beginning. It's a radical and a visionary idea. And I ask you to think for a moment in contrast how we usually hear the word justice used in contemporary news media and other public discourse. We usually hear calls after the fact, after some injury or crime, to get justice. Get justice for George Floyd. Get justice for Tyree Nichols, or for Tamir Rice, or any of the countless number of other people of color and their families especially, known and unknown, who have been injured at the hands of police. All of these calls speak about justice as something that is pursued in response to an injustice that has already happened, some kind of outrage or an act of criminal violence. And of course, we should do this. We do rightfully seek to redress wrongs, horrible wrongs, in ways that can bring healing to those who have been wronged, who have suffered injustice. But is this what we mean when we speak or call for or sing of a vision of life that might have the shape of justice? I don't think so. What we are asking for and dreaming of something is something far deeper, something more pervasive and woven into the intimate parts of our lives. What would life with that kind of shape look like? What would our experience of life be or feel like if life were actually to have the shape of justice? I began thinking along these lines more than four years ago in January 2019 when I heard Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez addressing a women's march in New York City. Here's some of what she said. Justice is about the water we drink. Justice is about the air we breathe. Justice is how easy, about how easy it is to vote. Justice is about how much ladies get paid. That's a populist message, but her words are radical. Her words breathe the spirit of deep justice. They recall Amos's prophetic image from the Hebrew scriptures of justice as a palpable essence that rolls down like waters. The metaphor is organic. Envisioning justice as something that is natural and pervasive, nourishing, and life-giving, an infusion of moral instinct or divine lure that can permeate and suffuse and saturate our social fabric, giving people the inward and instinctive impulse to live justly with one another in right relationship. This was also the prophet Jeremiah's vision 2,600 years ago, speaking again in the name of Yahweh. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. I will place my law deep within them, writing it upon their hearts. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know Yahweh, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Human society does not and likely never will fully embody such an ideal of deep or suffusive justice, instinctive justice that weaves itself into every aspects of our lives and relationships. So what do we do in the meantime? Well you know the answer. We devise pragmatic systems of justice penal systems, specialized coercive structures and constraints that try at their best to prevent or limit the occurrence of injustice, and failing that processes to deal reactively with specific acts of injustice, crimes, when they do occur. Thus, just as we distinguish on the one hand Uh, distinguish between the interconnected evils of individual racist acts or overt racist speech on the one hand and systemic or structural racism on the other. So too, we may likewise pursue justice at two different levels. We respond to a specific crime or injury and two, we try to make structural changes of existing justice systems, legislative, judicial, arbitrative, penal, and so forth, that can move our society, we hope at least modestly, toward the ideal of a more permeating justice. Moral majority leader and founder of the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber calls the reactive process set into motion after a crime has already been committed, band-aid justice. It's a kind of justice that our police and courts and penal systems are designed to jump in with after an act of violence has already happened, after the wound is bleeding. And of course we should do this, bleeding wounds, whether they are physical or psychological do need treatment and healing, and injustices do need to be redressed in individually and communally healing ways. But when we speak repeatedly, as our news media do, of justice only as something that comes after the injury has already happened, that burdens our mind with an impoverished idea of what deep justice really means. It tends to mask that deeper meaning. When Amos envisioned justice rolling down like waters, he wasn't talking about building more prisons. He wasn't talking about a stronger police force or a better judicial system or appointing tougher DAs. No, he was talking about structural justice. Justice as the very framework of relationships within a community or within a larger society or for the people of Israel, as he was speaking to at the time. 2800 years later, in our own time, philosopher John Rawls would articulate a similar understanding in saying that the primary subject of justice is the basic structure of society. The very need to speak of a justice system in any society is to acknowledge that our society is not permeated by justice, that it fails to be structurally just or to have the shape of justice. Justice achieved by response to injustice is not deep justice even if it be restorative, because when an injury is committed, no complete restoration is ever possible, even though perhaps a partial restoration can be achieved. Calling for life itself to have the shape of justice inherently presumes justice as a communal value. Life cannot have the shape of justice if it only concerns one person at a time. At our UUA General Assembly last month in Pittsburgh, we heard repeatedly talk of the need to move away from individualism for each person just doing what they want without any sense of the common good. You may know that much of our talk of individualism comes from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who wrote at a time when I think a notion of individualism was very much needed in a society that prized conformity too much. But that is not the society we live in today. When we have organizations like QAnon, and proud boys asserting individual rights with no notion of the common good. More individualism is not what we need. And we heard a lot of talk about this at General Assembly, about the importance of recognizing our communities, the way that we support them and they support us in return, the importance of covenant, of promises to be with one another and to walk with one another as we carry on the fight for justice in a better world that we look forward to. When we think only of getting justice for an individualized member of a crime, that too easily devolves to little more than angry and dubious vengeance. The idea of justice as a communal reality and a process is confirmed by Judith Herman in her most recent work on trauma and recovery, how trauma if survivors envision justice is her title, where she focuses on healing from violent crime as needing to happen in essential ways through community She writes, if trauma is truly a social problem, and indeed it is, then recovery cannot be simply a private individual matter. The wounds of trauma are not merely those caused by the perpetrators of violence and exploitation. The actions or inactions of bystanders, all those who are complicit in or who prefer not to know about the abuse or who blame the victims often cause even deeper wounds. These wounds are part of the social ecology of violence in which crimes against subordinated or marginalized people are rationalized, tolerated, and rendered invisible. If trauma originates in a fundamental injustice, she says, then full healing must require repair through some measure of justice from the larger community. But even this expanded notion of justice is still, is still reactionary, formulated as a response to the commission of injustice. Life truly having the shape of justice would mean that the deep ugliness, the deep ugliness of oppression, marginalization, and violent criminal activity would be banished from our lives. It would mean living in a truly beloved community that embraces all, a community of moral beauty. So that phrase again, moral beauty. Maybe at this point, it's time for me to lay some of my theological cards on the table for you. I imagine that some of you, maybe many of you, have heard of process theology. Maybe your minister, Amy Zucker Morgenstern has mentioned some of the basic ideas of process thought in her sermons over the years. And you may also know that modern process philosophy goes back to the 1920s and to the ideas uh, and comes out of the ideas introduced by Alfred North Whitehead. In my own theology, I've long been very much attracted to and influenced by Whitehead's thinking uh, by his cosmology and, indeed, his entire worldview, And the aspect of Whitehead's thought that is most relevant to what I want to emphasize this morning is his theory of value. In particular, his understanding of beauty as the deepest and most fundamental of values, not just for human beings, but as a value operating in the cosmos. Beauty, wrote, wrote Whitehead, is a wider and more fundamental notion than truth. Beauty is the internal confirmation of the various items of experience with each other and thus concerns the interrelations of the various components of reality. And thus, he says, any part of experience can be beautiful. The teleology, the forward pull of the universe is directed toward the production of beauty. Whitehead imagined God as a reality that lures us, not coerces, but lures us and everything in the universe in the direction of an ideal of beauty. For a Whitehead, God presents a vision of beauty and like a magnet attracts everything that happens, every event, every decision that we make toward that vision. But of course, we, along with all other creatures, have the freedom to follow or to reject that vision, that lure. God cannot control us. In Whitehead's view, God merely presents us with a vision of beautiful possibility. These ideas may seem strange at first. They certainly seemed strange when I first encountered them. Compared to more obvious human needs, beauty can sometimes seem like a luxury, something to be pursued in our spare time, uh, something available only to the privileged, perhaps, who can afford the time and money to visit museums or take long vacations to beautiful places. When we think of beauty, the first thing that we may think of is visual beauty works of art like painting and sculpture, or maybe it's beauty in nature, sea and sky and waterfalls. Or yet we may think of music and the beauty of harmony, the beauty of the human voice, for example. We often think of that famous triad, beauty, goodness and truth, as if they were three separate things side by side. But what if they are interrelated? What if John Keats was right in his Ode on a Grecian Urn when he wrote in 1819, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That is all ye you know on earth and all ye need to know. And then there's goodness. Does the value of what is good not lie in being beautiful? Is not the ideal of a just society an evocation of what I have called moral beauty? Or to put it negatively, when we feel revulsion, when we see oppression and enslavement, violent crime, is it not the ugliness of all that that we are reacting against? Moral beauty stands out as a vision of interrelated intensities, a kind of harmony, harmonization between contrasting elements. When philosopher Josiah Royce coined the term beloved community back in 1915, he missed the opportunity to speak of it as an ideal of moral beauty. But he did recognize that his beloved community was a manifestation of the working of a divine spirit, whose goal was, as he put it, the salvation of the world. It's a contemporary philosopher, Thomas Howe, who has made the connection between beauty and the vision of beloved community. In a recent essay, he asks, what would it mean to live for beauty? What if we took beauty to be our highest duty and derived our obligations towards others and our world from it? What would such a life look like? What sorts of contours and shapes would it have? Would it be a good life, one well lived? Would it provide sufficient sustenance and be capable of carrying us along as an affirmation of the fundamental worth of human life? Our hymn text, Spirit of Life, gives the answer to Thomas Howe's questions. Maybe the most important way of living for beauty is in striving toward a world a society in which life truly does have the shape of justice. A visionary idea like that, be it ever perhaps so impossible to reach completely, provides a beacon, a light that draws or lures us forward, an image of the beautiful that inspires our souls. Our vision is what guides our work, our struggle, even though like Sisyphus rolling his rock ever up the hill, its final realization may be beyond our grasp. Nevertheless, it is we, with the work of our hands, who shape our future. Imagine all the people living a life in peace. Oh, it is indeed a work of the imagination. And it would be beautiful, wouldn't it? morally beautiful, beautiful precisely in its goodness. It would be beautiful to live within, to look at, to be washed by as if by the soothing sound and feel of warm water lapping against our bodies. Our newly elected UUA president, Sophia Betancourt, whom Brian spoke about in an essay, the missing remnant said this, the good news is that we are in control of what we do with our daily living. If we, each one of us represent a missing element, a missing remnant in the fabric of our collective future, then together we can lean into a possibility that we have yet to fully experience in human history a collective wholeness, an unassailable good. That is the kind of salvation, Sophia says, that I am here to fight for in the smallest moments of every day. And so are we. We gather in communities of vision like this one, to fight for that kind of salvation. Life having this shape of justice is both visionary and ancient. Amos dreamed of it and let what he dreamed be ours to do. Let us work each day for a society of deeper justice, a society in which our lives may truly have the shape of justice. It is a kind of beauty, a moral beauty that is worthy of our dedication, of our lives. May it be so now and in all our days to come. Amen.